All right, good morning. Good morning. If you're visiting, glad that you're here with us. We are in Exodus chapter 2, still kind of in the introduction to Exodus, um, but not for much longer because today we we finally meet uh, Moses. In week one, we were looking at how Exodus is connected to and continuing from the book of Genesis, um, particularly but not limited to the the life of a man named Abraham and, uh, and his family and his descendants. And, and we'll see more of that connection with Genesis today, but it's all connected and continuing in the same story. Uh, the, the stories that God writes in our lives and through human history, it's always connected to what he's done before and what he's going to do after. The, the story of what God is doing in your life, it's connected to so much more than just um, just what's going on here now today. Uh, Last week, we looked at the dark circumstances surrounding God's people in Egypt, that they are, uh, they're hated and they're feared. Uh, Pharaoh kind of manipulates the heart of the nation, Egypt, to to stir up this hatred and this fear towards God's people. Um, uh, They become uh, enslaved and oppressed, and it even rises to the level that uh, you know, th- he changes the thinking of the people so much to view uh, the people of Israel as, as so subhuman that he issues a decree and it becomes a law in Egypt that when an Egyptian sees a son born to the Hebrews, that that child should, must be thrown into the Nile and, and destroyed. Uh, not entirely sure for how long it kind of rises to that level. They're in Egypt for 400 years, and it's sort of a, a gradual buildup where it becomes, uh, the burdens become heavier and hev- heavier, and their suffering becomes worse and worse. Um, in any case, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to Christianity, um, just know, like, the Bible's not naive about the way the world is you know, uh, or, or how dark the world can actually be if, if you've been through uh, or you're going through a particularly dark time in your life and you think, well, the Bible is just, you know, naively optimistic about how, how great life is and how blessed you can be. That's not how it is. Like, the, the Bible's very um, honest about how broken this world is. Uh, incredibly dark time in Egypt for Israel. And to this point, at least in the narrative, we haven't seen much movement from God interfering in uh, the, the situation in Egypt. We've seen a little bit, just a little bit last week where he, um, he, he uh, we see him moving for the midwives in Israel who resist Pharaoh's order, um, but really that's about it. Uh, in Exodus 2, that starts to change. Like, uh, t- to this point, it must feel like for the people of God, you know, God God's not very interested in us. Uh, he's, he's not moving. He's not helping. He's distant. Either he doesn't care, or he's not able, or whatever it is, but, but God's not here with us. In, in Exodus 2, we start to see just how much that's not true. And, and we know from the promises in Genesis that, that all this is, you know, God knows this is happening, and this is part of his plan, and, and he has a, a plan for bringing them out of it. Now, he actually starts to move, and uh, in, in chapter two here, the first way that he starts to move is this really bizarre set of uh, events that are clearly guided by God's hand. That's what we're going to read today. And then next week, in the second half of chapter two, we actually get a look at God himself and how he views and how he thinks about what's happening in 
Egypt. For today, we get this bizarre sequence of events surrounding the birth of Moses. And as we go through the scripture, we're going to read 10 verses. Um, there are three significant words that, uh, that sort of pop out from what we're reading, and we're going to spend some time discussing those. Uh, three words which are related. Those words are sovereignty, position, and rescue. Sovereignty, position, and rescue. Keep those words in mind. I think as we read through it, you'll, you'll start to see how some of them uh, are, are connected and present in it. So Exodus 2, starting in verse 1, says this, now a man from the house of Levi, as the people of Israel, uh, went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children, uh, one of the Hebrews' children. When, uh, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Sh shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the, woman, uh, so the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she says, I drew him out of the water. The word Moses, it's drawn out. Um, pretty wild as far as birth stories go, right? Like, every, like, you know, like parents, everyone has like a, like a birth story. Like, here's what happened around the birth, and like, here's the crazy thing that happened in the hospital. Like, no one's story is crazier than this. Um, Moses is born during the time when Pharaoh has made it the law that if a Hebrew son is discovered, he's to be thrown into the Nile, which, like, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, this is before that, uh, the current trend of, like, throwing babies into the pool until they float, like, that hadn't caught on yet, so, like, they didn't know how to float. Have you guys seen those videos? You know what I'm talking, like, they throw babies into pools, which just seems horrifying, like, it's so hard to watch, and I guess it works, because they keep doing it, and eventually they float, but, like, who figured out that it works? You know, like, aren't we a little bit suspicious about that? Like, the one who discovered it. I'm just saying he should be investigated, because either it was an accident, and he's just a very irresponsible person, or it wasn't an accident, and I think we have a right to know. Um, in any case, they had not yet started doing this for educational purposes. And the Nile is not like a pool. It's this massive river with millions of gallons of water moving along it, and it's full of crocodiles. So this is not, you know, this is a certain death for the children who are thrown into it. There's so much irony here, and God later kind of reverses this irony, but like the Nile is the source of life for Egypt. It creates this really fertile delta for all their agriculture, and they, and they drink from it. It's a source of life, and Pharaoh turns it for the people of Israel into the symbol of death. And then 
you know, later on, God kind of turns that on its head, but, but we'll get there later on in Exodus. Uh, for now, we're gonna pick out that first word that we mentioned, sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're, uh, we mean God has authority over all creation. He is the king over all creation. He's the creator of everything. and Everything he's created exists in his hands to do with what he desires to do. Uh, and God moves. He moves people and he moves events according to his own plan and purpose. He sort of arranges how human history unfolds. He arranges the, the sort of track that our lives even unfold. We've, we've looked at this verse before in this church a number of times, but it, it's just so clear. Isaiah 46, God says, for I am God and there is no other. I'm God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That is a firm declaration, right? This is like, uh, like the story of Babe Ruth, like calling his, his shot, calling the home run. Like, God calls his shots. He has the wisdom and the knowledge and the power and the ability to make his plans happen. Some people get this idea about God, and this was like much more popular, I think, in the 19th century but it's still like around. So this, this popular idea that people will have about God where um, they acknowledge the existence of God. They, they look out into the world and life and the universe. They see like the created order, that there's an order and a design to the reality that we find ourselves in. And they say like it's self-evident. There's, there's a creative mind that has brought about this reality that we see and we live in. Uh, they acknowledge the presence of a creator, but it's like as soon as he made it, he started to be hands-off. And like he's no longer involved, whatever else he's doing, we don't know, but he's not involved in the stuff that he's created, and he's certainly not involved in our personal lives. Um, and so like in a practical sense, like you, you believe there's a God, but like it doesn't matter with this, this thought that people have about God. And one of the things that makes that philosophy, I guess, attractive to people is, I mean, it comforts you that there really is no ultimate accountability for the way that you live your life because God's not interested. And so you sort of have the freedom to do and live however you want, and, uh, and, and there's no sort of sense of, of accountability before God for how you've lived your life. The problem with this is it, it's, it's so foreign to what God tells us about himself in his word. In, uh, in Hebrews chapter one, it says this about Jesus. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, this, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything that exists, not only do we owe initial creation to God, but we owe sustained, continual existence to the power and the will of God. He's still holding everything together. And it's not just on the sort of big macro level, God holding the sun and the stars and the galaxies together in, in, in the laws of the universe, uh, but, but even in, at a personal level, uh, God knows you, he knows your life, he's interested and involved in what's happening in your life. He affirms that again and again, just one place that we're going to look. You could look so many places. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Look at what this is telling you about how active God is in your life. He's my shepherd. Just like the, the shepherd for the sheep leads and guides the sheep behind, uh, to, to pastures and to waters to meet the needs of the sheep, God knows what you need in your life and he arranges and moves, thing, moves things so that your needs can be met, you can be provided for, he takes care of you through his, his sovereignty, his, his active role in your life where he, he moves things and it's not just your physical needs, but even like your spiritual needs. Look at that. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He cares about my heart. He cares about how I am. The God of the Bible is a deeply personal God. And, and if you have the sense that, you know, like, there's so many, like, big problems in the world. Like, there's wars, and there's inflation, and there's disease, and there's all these huge, high-level things that are happening, I'm, I'm no one. Like, why would God be interested in me? Like, why would he care about me? Your problem is that you're thinking about God, you're, you're viewing him as much smaller and less able than he actually is. God is involved in those things, and he knows about them. Then at the same time, he knows you, and he cares about you. You matter to him. He knows you. He's involved in your life. Look at everything that happens surrounding the birth of Moses. This, like, odd sequence of events that seem like coincidences, right? Like, such weird coincidences. Uh, Moses is born under Pharaoh's law that should destroy him. But his mother, because she's a mother and uh, she loves her children, she hides him for as long as she can. She wants to protect him. She can't keep him with them forever, and, and it doesn't really expand on this, but you have to imagine that this is just like an impossible situation for her. And like maybe the penalty for being found with him would be not only is, is Moses destroyed, but she and her husband and their daughter, their whole family would be destroyed. Maybe even more consequence to the community. And she's in such an impossible situation. She's just trying to do the, the best that she can. She protects him as long as she can. But there's no good answer for her. She, she, she can't fix it. She does what she can. Uh, she makes this small basket boat for him and sends him down the Nile with her daughter to watch over him. And then Moses happens to float to the place at the time when Pharaoh's daughter is going down to the river and she sees him and she takes pity on him. And then Moses' sister jumps out of the bushes wherever she is. That's like the weirdest thing in this whole thing for me is like how did that, like how did she like announce herself? Because, like, she couldn't have been, like, I don't know, she just, like, popped out of the Nile and she's like, hey, by the way, I can find someone to take care of that kid for you. But however that introduction happens, uh, she, she, she says, I'll, I'll find a nurse for you. Pharaoh's daughter says, says yes. And so Moses gets reunited with his own mother, and now Pharaoh's house is funding her to raise the child that Pharaoh's law tried to destroy. That's crazy. Uh, the, 
we call these things coincidences, but in reality, because we acknowledge God's sovereignty over creation, there are no ifs in God's kingdom. We know he's sovereign. We know uh, whatever happens is accounted for in God's plan, and he uses those things to accomplish his purpose. And like, so we don't always know what the purpose, like when you have those weird coincidences that happen, like you don't know exactly why those things are happening. And one thing that maybe is not a good thing to do is to, uh, to look for signs everywhere. Like, I don't know if you do this or if you know someone who does, but like every like thing that happens, like, uh, like you've, you've, you were thinking about a town and then you saw the name of it somewhere else and you're like, God's telling me to move there. Maybe, maybe not, <laughs> you know? Like, pray about it. You, you never know. Um, or like if, uh, so if, if like a name pops up for you as someone that you haven't seen or talked to in a long time, like that, it's not necessarily a sign that like you need to call your like ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend like, oh, your name came up. Um, maybe it's a sign to pray for them you know, like, we don't have to become sign hunters in our lives, because God's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who has a plan and has it all figured out, and you might not even know the most significant ways that God is going to use you to impact the lives of the people around you. Uh, Ten years ago, a little more than ten years ago, there was a man at a gas station uh, somewhere near Trenton, New Jersey, who wrote on a dry erase board at the entrance to the gas station. He wrote a Bible verse, Hebrews 11, verse 1. And um, this guy, that, that's all he did. He worked at a gas station. He wrote this verse on the door, and he went about his day. And, like, not something that most gas stations have. Um, he doesn't know that that ver- that I would happen to be at that gas station on the day that he happened to write that verse, on the day that happened to be the worst, most painful, darkest night of my life, which it still is to this day, and that that verse would happen to be the, the only verse of the Bible I ever bothered said about memorizing. So I want to know this verse. I'm going to memorize it years before. On the worst night ever, I happened to be there. I happened to see that verse. It happened to be the one that I memorized. And this guy has no idea. He has no idea that I saw it. He has no idea what an impact that had for me and how that set about a change of course in my life of seeking God and being open and, and trying to find the, the truth about who he is and how that has just changed my life in such incredible ways. And he'll probably never know. I wish I could find him. I'd tell him in a, in a heartbeat. One day he'll find out, but... You don't know how God is going to use you to, uh, to significantly impact the lives of the people around you as part of his sovereign plan, his love for us and his care for us. But he's doing it. God is sovereign. He's arranging our lives. He's involved in our lives. 
second word in the text that holds significant meaning for us is, uh, is position. And it's tied to God's sovereignty. So the second word is position. By position, I mean the place where God's sovereignty has put you and what he has positioned you to be able to do in your own life, your own sort of unique circumstances and the opportunities that he opens up for you. Um, so, so idealistic people, if you're idealistic or you know someone who is, they have this strong desire to, to change the world or make big changes or solve big problems. And, and ideal, they're great. I think we need more idealistic people, not less. Uh, typically, people who are younger, not, not always, um, with like really idealistic Christians, th- it tends to be like uh, Christians who are newer in your faith, whether you are new to your faith at 10 or new to your faith at 20 or new to your faith at 50. There's like this, this time when you're just filled with such excitement and enthusiasm and idealism and it's infectious and it's great. And at the same time, like, they just want to go and, like, like conquer the world for Christ, you know? Like, not in a militaristic way, but, like, through, like, the love of Christ. Like, no, like, crusades or holy wars or anything like that. But just, like, I want to tell everyone the good news about Jesus. I want to see everyone's lives touched and changed by Jesus. And they just go. And it's great. And at the same time, you have other people who tend to be uh, older in their faith or they've, they've the people who have walked with Jesus faithfully for 10, 20, 40 years, however long it's been, and they've gained over that time something that we call wisdom. And, and these people tend to be uh, a little bit more cautious, or maybe like measured is a better word. Um, and, and they also love Jesus, they also have faith, uh, and, and these people are great too. You kind of need both, because they're able to kind of influence and, and bring each other together to accomplish God's mission in the best way possible. Like the idealistic people influence the, the aged wisdom so that they don't just become uh, immobile, you know, and, and frozen and unmoving, and, and they, never, they never take any steps at all. So it, it really motivates the movement, and at the same time, wisdom influences the ideal, the idealists, uh, so that they don't make decisions that are, like, really foolish, because they don't, they don't take all the factors into consideration. There are things they're not thinking about, and and even the most well-intentioned thing, maybe there's some unintended consequence that you're not seeing there, and so they, they both help each other. You need both groups of people in the church. All that to say, no person on their own is responsible for doing everything. Everyone is responsible for doing something. Does that make sense? Everyone's responsible for doing something. No one's responsible for doing everything. No single person, you look at Exodus 2, no single person does everything to bring Moses through this crisis. Everyone involved does the part that God has presented before them, the position that he's placed them, and, and what he's positioned them to do. I love this, uh, Proverbs 3, verse 27. One of my favorite verses in Proverbs. It says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Like, you don't have to do all the good in the world. You have to do the good that's right in front of you. Like, wherever God's placed you, whatever it is that you're able to do there, 
However, you can be faithful to serve God's purpose and plan in, in your home, with your family, in your work, in your church, in your neighborhood. The opportunities that he's opened up for you to, to bless and serve and be a blessing to the people around you, working within the, the circumstances of the position that you're in, like, Moses' mother, she can't make all this happen on her own. She can't get things to the point that Moses is safe with her and then Pharaoh funds her, her child care. She can't do that. She does what she can do. She hides him as long as she can. She protects him. She, she sends him as safely as she can to the river, and she sends her daughter to watch over him. Moses' sister can't do everything on her own, but she does what she can. She keeps watch over Moses. And when Pharaoh's daughter finds him, she jumps out, and, uh, and w- she takes a risk, you know? I don't know what that <laughs> situation was like, but, I mean, this is the household that created this horrible law that Moses is suffering under. But she comes out, she boldly offers, I can find someone for the kid. And that reunites him with their family. Pharaoh's daughter does what she can for Moses. This is amazing. This is maybe not what you would expect from the household of the man who made the Hebrews subhuman and worthy of destroying in, in the hearts of the people of Egypt. She didn't have to take him. She takes pity on him. She chooses to ignore the, f- the law that her father created and even adopt him. How has God positioned you in your own life? Where has he placed you? So that you can serve him and be a blessing to others. You don't have to do everything, but there is something. Are you prepared to do it? Like, when the opportunity presents, are you prepared to do it? In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, and he tells him, you know, be ready in season and out of season. Just always be ready for the opportunity that's there. In uh, in John 3, Jesus says this, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The, The work of the Holy Spirit in the world, his movement in the world, we can't predict it. We don't know when the Holy Spirit's gonna move in power. The idea is we can't predict it, but we should be ready for it. You know what would be, you know, if, like, if you were out at sea in a sailboat, and this is like old times, so there's not a motor or whatever, so you're like, you know, old times, you're in a sailboat, and uh, there's no wind. A foolish decision would be, well, there's no wind, I'm gonna take down the sail and fold it up and keep it safe in this box. What you want to do is make sure the sail is ready so when the wind starts blowing, you can catch it. Are you ready if the wind starts to blow, if God starts to move and where he's positioned you, there's this opportunity to serve him and be a blessing to others. Are are you ready for that opportunity? If there's an opportunity to pray with someone or serve them or even share the gospel with them, Like, if your neighbor came up to you today, you go home and your neighbor says, hey, 
How's your day? Where were you? Oh, I was at church. Tell me about that. What is that all about? What is your faith all about? Who's Jesus? If they just lob it over the plate for you, are you ready to take a swing? Are you prepared to, to have that conversation? If you suddenly got a phone call and, and the person who's calling you is in a crisis and, and they need you, they need your help, they, they're looking for hope, are, are you prepared to go and be with that person and, and be a blessing to them and care for them and, and point them to the hope that you have? God has positioned you where you are. There will be opportunities to serve him and bless the people around you. Are you prepared for it? It's the second word, position. Finally, the last word here is rescue. Maybe, uh, maybe the most obvious word in this account. Um, all these people are positioned around Moses for his rescue, right? His, his mom and his sister and, and Pharaoh's daughter rescuing him from the death that he's facing. And then, through this, God is actually positioning Moses for the eventual rescue of his people from Egypt, right? Moses, because of this, he's gonna be brought up in Pharaoh's household with all of the education and connections and opportunities that his household can afford while at the same time, he holds on to his identity as, uh, as a Hebrew, as, as one of the people of God, uh, the people who are suffering in Egypt. He holds on to that identity, so he's uniquely placed, and God ends up using him to lead his people to freedom from Egypt and rescue them from their slavery and from the, the death that they're facing there. Um, but it all starts with Moses being drawn out of the water of the Nile. And uh, Remember, Exodus is continuing from Genesis and really picks up on so much from Genesis. Uh, there is a, an account early on in Genesis, even before, um, even before Abraham, the, the account of Noah and the great flood, and we see uh, echoes of that, almost a repetition of that here with Moses, where um, Noah, there, there's a great flood that, that is set upon the earth, and Noah's delivered through it by being on the ark, and Moses is thrown into the waters of the Nile, and he's delivered through this, this little uh, boat that his mother makes for him, both of them drawn out of water that represents certain death that, that they themselves would be powerless against, like in their own ability to rescue themselves, but they're brought through it, and it doesn't just end here with Moses. Like that story of rescue, the same pattern is repeated ultimately in Jesus and for us. And we can recognize just how closely related these things are because Jesus gives us the practice of baptism. It, it's the same thing and, and in baptism. It's a symbolic act that demonstrates the salvation of Jesus in our lives that uh, we're, we're lowered into the water. Jesus, he dies for us, for our sins, and, and we're put to death with him. Right, the old self is put to death, lowered into the water, and on the third day, Jesus rises from the grave. He conquers death, and that new life he fills us with and creates new life in us, rescuing us. Uh, just as, as Noah and Moses, they're rescued from these things that they're, 
they're, they're powerless against, they're bigger than them. Noah with the flood and Moses with the Nile, God rescues his people today through Jesus. But the thing that he rescues us from, the thing that you are powerless against, it's not the flood of waters, it's the overwhelming presence of sin in your own life and the inescapable consequence of sin, which is death. The thing that Jesus rescues you from, the thing that you need rescuing from, is the overwhelming presence of sin in your own life and the inescapable consequence of sin, which is death. And I know, if you're like visiting today and you're, you're not a Christian, like you start to roll your eyes here and you go, all right, you know, here's the guilt trip. And like, kind of, but like, not in, a, not in a manipulative way, more in like a trying to open your eyes to reality kind of way. You know, like if this is true, we should tell the truth about it, right? If it is true that there's a God, if it's true that you are a sinner and there is an eternity opening before you, if there's an eternal salvation that's offered to you, you want to know about that. Sin is, sin is anything that offends God, right? God is our creator. He creates us. He creates the universe. And in the beginning, he says everything is good. And, uh, and with everything created and everything good, he only makes one rule. He makes one restriction. Uh, don't eat that fruit because if you do, you'll die, which is a good rule. Uh, I have that rule for like a hundred different things for, for my daughter, my two-year-old. Like, don't eat that rock. You'll die. Don't eat that battery. You'll die. I, I think you'll agree with me. Those rules don't diminish her and they don't restrict her from enjoying the greatest amount of happiness possible in, in her life. Those, those are the rules that protect her. They keep her safe and enable her to enjoy the greatest amount of happiness possible because she's not choking and there's not a hole being burned in her stomach. Um, not that she sees it that way, but that's fine. Uh, what, what we've done in our sin is we've taken the things that God says, listen, these, this is sin, this is evil. This will create suffering for you. It'll create suffering for the people around you. It'll make the world a darker place. We take those things and we say, God, I, about these things, I disagree with you. And I think you're wrong. I think these things are fine. They're fine for me. And I'm gonna do what I want. And then, at the same time, we take some of the things that God says, here, here are the things that are good. Here are the things that you should do when you do these things. This is a, a blessing to the people around you. This brightens the world. This is good for the world. We take some of those things and we say, God, those are evil. I'm not gonna do those things. I'm not required to do those things. Whether it's by doing things that we ought not to do or not doing things that we ought to do, sin is when we offend God and by doing so, rightly deserve guilt, rightly deserve blame. And let me just correct the church on one thing that I sometimes see. Just a little correction here. But listen, when you talk about your sin, don't, don't try to pass them off as, as a mistake or as an accident or saying things like, oh, I tripped or I fell. Like all those, 
all those little things, the way that we talk about our sin, um, I'm not saying that you don't regret it and in, in that it was a mistake to do it, but it wasn't like an unintentional, accidental thing. Like when we talk about our sin that way, what we're really trying to get at is um, I'm not fully to blame here. Yeah, we're trying to lessen our own responsibility in it. Uh, sin is a choice. When we sin, we, be, we do it because we, we want to do it. Either we do it intentionally, or if it's, an, if it's an unintentional sin, it's because we're not intentional enough about the things that God wants us to be intentional about. And, and we should, we, f- we should feel remorse for it and repent, but we're ultimately responsible for it. We're, we have a sin nature, in a, like the spiritual condition that we're in, apart from the rescuing work of Jesus in our lives. We have a sin nature, and what that is, is like in our hearts, there's this bend, and the bend in our hearts bends away from fully loving and worshiping and listening to and, and submitting to and obeying God. Right? It just bends away from him. Can't fully embrace him, fully love and worship him and, and submit to him. It, we, we have that bend in us. Um, that's who we are apart from the rescuing work of Jesus in us. And let me just give the church one more correction here because sometimes some, some very well-intentioned people in the church will say things like, uh, when people receive judgment for their sins, so they've, they've never turned to Jesus, they've never trusted in him for their forgiveness, for their salvation, uh, and, and so they face judgment for their sin, and, and that is hell. And they'll say, you know, hell is just people getting what they want because they don't want God. And hell is the description for what being separated from God is. There are two problems with that. Uh, first, hell is not, it's not accurate to say that hell is this passive experience where you're separated from God. God judges sin. God has wrath for sin. When Jesus is on the cross, he suffers the wrath of God for sin in an active way. Um, Hell is not so much separation from God as it is separation from the grace of God. Separation from the peace of God. Separation from from a right relationship with God. And God has to have wrath for sin because God is just and God is loving. And and if, if you went to a courtroom and and the person who's guilty who's who's done an awful evil thing if you if you saw the judge in that courtroom say you're forgiven you're off free go uh, you'd say this is an injustice this this was an evil thing that happened here today god has to have justice for sin so first of all it's wrong because it's not simply a passive experience where you're separated from God. There is active wrath from God in judgment for sin. Second, when people go to help, they're absolutely not getting what they want. They're not. No one wants that. They like it's partly true to talk about it in a way well like you don't want God and so now you're not like really with him and so kind of in that sense but like but no one wants judgment hell isn't giving people what they want it's giving people what they've chosen what they want is a fiction it doesn't exist people want all the 
benefits of God, all the graces of God, because he's the source of all good things. They want all the good things. They just don't want him. But that doesn't exist. You can't have it. They're still in their sin. They're not forgiven. They're going to receive his wrath. It's not, it's not what they want. It's what they've chosen. Our, our sin, that, that judgment that we're up against, the wrath for sin, the, the overwhelming presence of sin in our lives, that bend in our hearts that no matter how much good you try to do, you can't unbend it. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus, he goes in our place and he makes a way of rescue for us. He becomes our rescuer. On the cross, he pays the debt for our sin by dying in our place. That, that obtains forgiveness for us. On the third day, he rises from the grave so that when we put our faith in him and we depend on him alone for our salvation, not only do we get that forgiveness, we actually receive this new life that he creates in us, a new heart and a new nature that is able to love him. The, the life-giving hope of the gospel, like the, just the incredible power of the gospel is this, like in heaven, in, in the new heavens and the new earth that God creates, there's not going to be uh, a sin you can think of that someone in heaven has not been forgiven of. Jesus can forgive everyone. He can forgive you. He can forgive whatever it is in your life that you think like this is too much, this is too wrong, he won't want anything to do with me. No, he does. He has grace for you. He loves you. And if your response to that is like, that's too easy. You know, like that's, like so anyone can just say I'm sorry and like that's it. And so like, like I'm, and on one hand, if you go, like, that's too easy, like, you are getting it, but it's not, it's not something you can just, like, do, like, just go through the motions, and, like, you're in, and, like, you're covered. Uh, forgiveness requires repentance and faith, and in making that decision to repent and to put your faith in Jesus, there has to be this real deep remorse for your sin. Like Jesus describes this process as dying to yourself. There's a, there's a death to yourself. That can't be faked. It can't be faked because God won't be mocked if your plan is to live however you want and then at some point in the future I'm then gonna come to God and I'm gonna ask for forgiveness and I'm gonna put my faith in Jesus uh, if that's your plan, it's a bad plan. And God sees right through it. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Don't wait and try to time it just right. You don't know how things are going to be different for you in the future and how much harder it may be for you to even want to turn to God in that day. The, like, the longer that you wait, just a little preview for what we're gonna see in Exodus, and we'll come back to this, of course, but um, what we see happening in Egypt, and especially with Pharaoh, so you guys know the plagues. Like, those things are coming. That's not, like, a spoiler. Um, a lot of people know about it. Uh, so God sends these plagues, these judgments on, on Egypt, and, and he's 
the point is to, um, to set his people free, that you're being judged because you're holding on to my people. You need to set them free. And what happens in the beginning is uh, Pharaoh will, will see the plague and he'll, he'll relent and he'll say, okay, you can go free. But then the way the text describes it, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart, he changed his mind, and then God would send another. And this happens again and again. Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart until there's a change. And the way Exodus describes it at a certain point is God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Eventually, God gives Pharaoh over to the choices that he's made again and again and again to harden his heart. And he no longer had, at that point, an opportunity for repentance. Don't make a practice of hardening your heart to God. Don't make a practice of putting it off. I'll think about it later. I'll think about it later. Jesus offers you eternal salvation. He offers it to you at the price of his own life that he stepped into your place. He suffers wrath for your sin because he loves you. If that's true, if Jesus really loves you that much, if he really went in your place and he really uh, makes a way for you to have eternal salvation, that's something you should want to find out about, not someday, but like as soon as possible. That's something that if it's true, you should want to make a decision about. Jesus rescues us from the overwhelming presence of our own sin and from the inescapable consequence of sin, which is death. He makes a way for us. Jesus wants to draw you out of your sin and the fear of death, just like he draws Moses out of the river. He wants to draw you out of your sin, draw you out of the fear of death so that he can draw you into the joy and the peace of knowing him, of being loved and forgiven by him. God is sovereign. He is arranging all events in history and even in your own life to serve his plan and his purpose. God has positioned you where you are with the people that you have around you. You don't know how God is going to use you to serve and to bless others. You just have to be prepared. And ultimately, God's plan is about the rescue of his people through his son Jesus and because of his great love. I hope you know the the freedom and the joy of experiencing that rescue. Let me pray for us.